So in the New Testament, agape is almost always used to describe the love that is of God and from God, whose very nature is love itself. 1 John 4, 8 tells us God is love. God does not merely love. He is love itself. God does not merely love out of an act of will. He is love. He cannot help himself. It's in his nature. He loves the unlovable and the unlovely, not because we deserve to be loved or because of any excellence we possess, but because it's his nature to love and he has to be true to his nature. He truly can't help himself. We're in a new series uh, this morning, starting off our summer series, and it's called, as you can see on the screen here, The Good Fight. And this is a teaching series, if you saw on the uh, weekly email newsletter, that we're going to be walking through the months of June, July, and August through uh, the book of First Timothy. First Timothy. There's a slight chance we might dip a little bit into Second Timothy at the end of the summer, uh, depending on how everything shakes out. But right now, the intent is that we are going to walk verse by verse over the next three months through uh, the book of First Timothy. A couple of things I really just quickly want to touch on about First Timothy. So, First Timothy, as you're going to see here in just a minute or two, when we start to get into the real meat of the message, it is a, a letter that was written by uh, the Apostle Paul, who almost all of you, I'm sure, are familiar with, uh, to his young pastoral apprentice, Timothy, in the city of Ephesus. So Paul is writing to Timothy in the city of Ephesus, instructing him basically on how to deal with matters in the church. It's what's called a pastoral epistle, meaning it's a pastoral instructional type uh, of letter from Paul to Timothy. Now, this is the first known letter from Paul to Timothy. We obviously have a second one that it's, you're able to date that one and find out by reading the, how the, you know, the context and all that's going on with that, that it came after 1 Timothy. That's why it's called 2 Timothy. Um, but there's indications, of course, that there were many, many, many more letters probably written from Paul to Timothy, and we don't have any from Timothy back to Paul, which is always interesting. So we have one side of a conversation, but not the other. But there's indicators even in other uh, epistles or books that Paul wrote that he had written other letters and other things that we just don't have. So what we have are these two letters. We're going to focus on the first one. An epistle, not that this matters, but it is super interesting. An epistle was a very specific type of letter uh, that was written. So it wasn't one of those things where you just sat down um, with paper and pen back then or whatever, and you just started writing kind of like whatever came to mind. And then you just said, you know, love you, Paul, whatever. So it was more structured than that. There was an actual specific structure to it where it has a very specific opening, a very specific closing, and then two very specific sections in the middle of it. So it has four strong sections, and each section actually ends with a poem. And so that's a specific structure. So he would have had to think about what he wanted to write, how he wanted to write it, how he wanted to do that. Poems, obviously, you just don't come up with off the top of your head. He's using, of course, biblical imagery. And we're going to get into a lot of this. Um, I don't want to spend any more time on it today simply because of this. I want to issue two challenges for you for the entirety of the summer. This is the first Sunday of the summer. So the entirety of the summer, I want to issue two challenges uh, for you. Challenge number one is no doubt 
uh, you're going to be gone on vacation. I'm going to be gone next Sunday. We have other vacations scheduled. People are going to be gone. So if you're gone, that's fine. But I want you to listen to every sermon in the series. So if you miss a week, I really want you to go back and listen because this is going through an entire epistle, an entire letter, an entire book, and it's meant to really be taken in and digested, like, holistically, like, in its entirety. If you miss a week or two weeks, yeah, you're going to get some stuff. You're going to get lots of good stuff, but I think it'll be that much more meaningful and powerful and educational and hopefully transformative to you if you listen to every sermon in the series. So I would just challenge you to do that and try not, you know, if you, I try to do it in order if at all possible. Now, the challenge number two is read First Timothy on your own, once a week. Once a week. It will take you at most, probably, at most 15 minutes. Probably not that, but at mo- it's at most 15 minutes. So read it once a week. I tell people this kind of stuff all the time, but it's okay if you decide this summer, June, July, August, I am just going to land on First Timothy. That's it. Like my scripture reading, my scripture study, my meditation, all these things that I do around scripture this summer, I'm just going to lock into the book of First Timothy. I love when we choose to do things like that, and then our congregation chooses to do that together. I think there's some kind of synergy that happens when we all are engaging that way. So listen to every sermon in the series and read First Timothy on your own just once a week. Put a note on your calendar. Maybe you do it at the same time every week, 10 to 15 minutes. Read, read it. And I think in the repetition, reading it over and over again, and then coming on Sunday mornings or catching up on the podcast and hearing it expanded upon and sort of drawn out and taught, it's just going to really give it a level of richness that it wouldn't otherwise have if you're just getting these little bits and pieces and chunks here and there. So uh, I would love it if you, if you would just commit to doing that without excuse or any of that. Just I'm going to do it. So. All that being said, let's dive in. So, if you have a Bible with you, physical or your phone, and you want to open it, you can do that. Because, again, we're going to be going verse by verse through this. It's going to be a little different than how I taught through, like, Acts 1, 2, 3, and 4. Because uh, I am going to focus on a really specific theme here that Paul hits on early. But I still want to walk through it. So, First Timothy chapter 1. We are also going to have it on the screen. Um, And so we're going to go through verses 1 to 7 today, verses 1 to 7. But again, we're going to focus specifically uh, on one thing that he says. So let's kick it off. Paul, he identifies himself, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, our hope. If you've read any of other of Paul's letters, you'll know, or any of things that he wrote, you'll know that he always basically opens with a statement similar to this. He wants everybody to know, and it's almost like it serves as a reminder to him that he didn't choose this position that he's been put in, that nothing that he did through his own righteousness, through his own effort, through his own holiness, anything like that was good enough to exalt him to this position that God's exalted him to. It was literally by the command of God, our God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope, he was literally blindsided, uh, no pun intended, by Jesus on the road to Damascus and had his life forever altered. And Jesus told him, you will be an apostle. And also, I'm going to show you how much you must suffer for my name. So Paul's reminding himself, it's a good act of humility. I didn't do anything for this. Jesus is the one who chose me, and he wants everybody to know that. So then he says, continuing on, to Timothy, my true son, in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father 
in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, he almost always introduces his letters or his other books with grace and peace or grace, mercy, and peace. So those clearly aren't just words to him. He's not just using that as filler. Uh, those are important things, again, for him to constantly be in remembrance of and that he wants to communicate to his hearers. So here we go on with his instructions to Timothy. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus. Why? So that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work which is by faith. So he's giving Timothy this charge. I want you to stay where you're at because Paul was constantly moving around as sort of an apostle, a missionary. That was his call was to be different places, planting churches, helping those churches raise up and then trying to get them healthy. And then he'd move on to a next one and then he'd visit and it was just constant movement. But he's telling Timothy, I don't want you to follow suit. What I want you to do is stay what was likely your hometown in Ephesus. And I want you to command certain people not to teach false doctrines. So if you're Timothy and you're getting this letter and you're a young pastor, which he was, uh, and you're Paul saying, hey, stay in Ephesus and here's why. I want you to command people to not teach certain doctrines. You're like, oh, really? Like, do I have to do that? Because, you know, when you're a pastor, like the last thing you want to really do is like command people to stop doing bad stuff because then they don't usually like you, you know? It's not usually a good thing. And we know, and we'll learn this later, that Timothy had real issues with like anxiety, like real issues with anxiety and with fear and maybe a little bit of like people pleasing and really not being bold. And so uh, Paul's commanding him, you know, to command people. And for Timothy, that would have been like, oh, it's not really my personality, like to do this. And so uh, reading this, he had to be a little bit like nervous, you know, his stomach turning. So then Paul continues on, tells Timothy why he wants him to do that. He says in verse five, the goal, the goal of this command is love which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. So 1 Timothy 1 through 7. I want to drill down and focus our efforts this morning on verse 5. Verse 5. The goal of this command is love. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. I put up a couple of other uh, translations of this because I think it's good to look how uh, different versions have worded it. So the New Living Translation, which is the second one down, NLT, says the purpose the purpose of my instruction is that all believers would be filled with love that comes from a pure heart, excuse me, a clear conscience and genuine faith. And I love Eugene Peterson's message translation. The whole point, the whole point of what we're urging is simply love. Love uncontaminated by self-interest and counterfeit faith, a life open to God. So here you have the New International Version, the New Living Translation, and the message, and they all spelled out differently, but the goal 
the purpose, the whole point of our instruction, the whole point of our teaching, the whole point of why we gather together to learn more about the scriptures, to encourage each other, to be changed and transformed. The whole point of everything that we do, all of it, is culminated in love. Love that comes from this place, right? This pure place, a pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith. It's uncontaminated by self-interest or selfishness or a counterfeit faith. It's not self-seeking. It's not self-serving. It's not about exalting yourself above others, right? For the sake of some sort of honor. No, it's love, self-sacrificial, deep, intense love. The whole point. What's interesting is this verse, 1 Timothy 5, had been on my heart for about a month. And it came out of nowhere just one morning in my own kind of quiet time. I just remembered the the goal of our instruction is love. And it's something I've been praying about a lot in my own life lately because it's good to know all kinds of stuff about the Bible. And it's good to do all that stuff. But the goal is love. And if I'm not being more transformed and filled with love, then like it's like an adventure and missing the point, so to speak, right? And so then I'd been on this verse anyway, and then Jordan tells me like a month, you know, a month into it, hey, I'm, and I hadn't talked to him about it, but he's like, hey, I'd really like to do First Timothy like this summer. And I was like, well, that's cool. Can I take the first week? <laughs> because this has been on my heart. So an interesting note. You can see that I have love uh, in all caps here. And so the love uh, that Paul is talking about here. The word he's using is a word that maybe many of you are familiar with. We've talked about it here before on Sunday morning. But the Greek word that he uses for love here is agape. Agape, right? And we're going to talk more about agape in just a minute. But, but first, I want, to, I want to talk about something that I think helps frame uh, the message a little bit. And it may come off as a little bit strong, but I hope what you hear in it is uh, an encouraging thing or a, a little bit of pastoral uh, yeah, wisdom maybe on some level, but it's also for me as much as for anybody. So like most people in our uh, country right now, um, I have a, a level of concern about the state of things, right? I have a level of concern about the state of things. Now, for those of people that have known me for a long time, I am about the least likely person to be given to any sort of like um, societal panic or societal like worry or concern about what the government is or isn't doing or, you know, about how culture's trending this way or that way and that kind of stuff. It just doesn't usually like ruffle my feathers that much or, or get me like all upset. And so when I say that I have a level of concern about the state of things, let me tell you what I'm not talking about. What I'm not talking about is gas prices. What I'm not talking about Uh, about so much is who is or isn't in office. What I'm not talking about so much, although it's certainly a a big problem and all that kind of stuff, is sort of what's going on with the LGBTQ plus stuff and how many churches um, have become sort of beholden to that and there are people falling uh, by the wayside. Well, that part, that last part I am concerned about, but what culture itself is doing is, is not uh, necessarily what keeps me up at night or what I'm concerned about. What I'm concerned about, what I have a lot of concern about presently, is how the church is acting, is how the church is responding, how the church is manifesting certain behaviors or the lack of certain behaviors to the world. That is my concern about how things go on because the world, whether you knew it or not, the world's going to be the world, right? 
But the church is called to be the church. And Paul says, what business is it of mine to judge those in the world? He said, but it is my business to judge those in the church. And he wasn't saying that in a condemning way. What he's talking about is holding us to account for what he's writing to Timothy, that the whole point of our instruction, the goal of everything we do is love. So yes, society is gonna be society. The world's always been the world since the dawn of creation. Let's not forget that at one point it was so wicked, God was like, just reset everything, right? That was pretty bad. And so it's gone on like that. And is it bad now? Yep. Is it going to be bad? Yep. Was it bad? Yep. And you can, we can talk all day about where it's at on a certain continuum and it's worse now or, or whatever. But I'll tell you, the world's going to be the world, but the church is called to be the church. And my concern is that the church is not being the church. Jesus had this concern and not only did he have it as a concern, he actually basically gave it as a prophecy and a warning to us. So I want to hit on this real quick. In Matthew 24, he's talking about times that will come. He's prophesying about sort of this, it was this mixture actually of the end times and then some stuff that was actually gonna happen uh, to Israel even in the lifetime of many of the apostles. So it was this interesting mixture hybrid of sort of prophecy. And in Matthew 24, 12 through 13, he says this, and I have it on the screen for you. He says, because of the increase of wickedness, so he's talking about there will be an increase at different times, the love, okay, the love, all caps there, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And I could honestly preach a whole message on that. I almost want to right now, but I just, I'll hold off. But it's a big deal right? Because the word he uses there for love, guess what it is? Agape. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love, the agape of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. It sounds like he's talking about Christians because he's talking to people and he's giving instruction for those who would be Jesus followers. And he says their love, their agape of most will grow cold. Then he says, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. So he's talking about Christians who stand firm in their faith, in their love, and don't let it grow cold. So let's go back to agape. There are three Greek words for love. Agape is the one that's used here in 1 Timothy 1.5 and in the text we just read. So it's important to know what it means. So in the New Testament, agape is almost always used to describe the love that is of God and from God, whose very nature is love itself. 1 John 4.8 tells us God is love. So agape is almost always, almost without exception, used to describe the love that is of God and from God, whose very nature is love itself. Our English word love, uh, it's, I'm sorry, unlike our English word love, agape does not ever refer to any sort of romantic love, ever. Nor does it refer even to a close friendship or brotherly love. That word is actually uh, philea, which is where we get Philadelphia, the city of what? Brotherly love, right? Well-known fact. You just learned something today. So that's philea or philea. 
That's that word. Agape is never used in that sense. Check this out on, on the screen. Agape love uh, involves faithfulness, commitment, and an act of the will. It also encompasses goodwill, kindness, and having an affinity for the object of your love. So it encompasses goodwill, meaning that you will and you want and you desire the best for the person that you are loving, that you are kind, and that you have an affinity. Do you know what an affinity is, right? You have a sort of this tendency toward something. It's almost a natural tendency. It's like you can't really explain it. One of the best ways to think about it is we all have different palates, right, when it comes to food. And there are certain things that some of us have a strong affinity for, and we can't really explain it, right? Have you ever wondered why some person likes super spicy hot food and some person can't stand it? Why some person wants to eat, you know, all kinds of international cuisine and why some person, Tim Grubb, just likes plain cheeseburgers, right? Just, just messing with my boy. So that's... So, but there's no like rhyme or reason to that, right? I have uh, a definitely, uh, and I'm working on it and I've been doing great, but I have an affinity, right, for Ben and Jerry's. Like, I don't know why. I mean, I do kind of, because it's amazing, but like, I don't know why naturally I'm just like, I could eat this all day, every day, you know? So, you, but it's so there's an, with this word agape, there's sort of like, a, um, I don't know what the word quite would be, but it's like, there's just a natural part of that love a natural part of that love where you kind of have an affinity for the object of your affection. So there's a natural leaning towards that person or people. You can't necessarily even explain why you're drawn to love them, but then it still is an act of will uh, when you're showing them kindness and your heart wants the best for them, right? So you have those things in place, but it also involves faithfulness, commitment, and an act of will. So keep that in mind. Agape love, uh, again, this is something that was written by the Apostle Paul. Agape love is beautifully described in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now, it's super interesting to me that this is a text that's always read at weddings because it literally has nothing to do, as I said earlier, with romantic uh, love. Now, the definition of it I just gave where it's faithfulness, an act of will, right, commitment and those types of things certainly can be applied to marriage, and that's fine. But what Paul's talking about here is actually the Christian life. And he's talking about how the Christian life is to be lived, uh, not in a romantic sense at all, but just from person to person. So let's just read that chunk. It's a beautiful chunk of scripture, and I'm sure a lot of you are very familiar with it. So 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 8a says this, if I speak in tongues of men or of angels, but do not have agape. I'm just going to substitute agape, okay? I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have a faith that can move mountains, but I don't have agape, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship, well, some translations say give my body to the flames, Right? that I may boast, but do not have agape, I gain nothing. Agape is patient. Agape is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. 
It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. This is a powerful one. It keeps no record of wrongs. Agape does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Agape never fails. In the New Testament, agape, again, is almost always used to describe the love that is of and from God, whose very nature is love itself. This is a super important thing, and it's something that's easy to gloss over or not fully grasp or understand, but it's super important. It's maybe you won't be able to have the time this morning to really think about it, but you can take a picture and make a note. And It's this. God does not merely love. He is love itself. Okay? God does not merely love from an act of will or from those types of things, right? He is love itself. First John 4, 8, we read earlier. God is love. That's an important distinction to make. The type of love that characterizes God is not a sappy, sentimental feeling such as we often hear portrayed in our modern culture. Our culture is as jacked up as any culture in history when it comes to what love actually is, what love actually means. In our culture, if I can give a really thumbnail definition of what our culture would define as love, it's something like this, condoning and rubber stamping uh, any behavior that somebody you like wants to engage in. Like, that's love. Whatever they want to do, whatever they want, you don't love them unless you give them permission. That's somehow love. So we've seen and we continue to see the destructive, evil nature of that lie. That love is just letting people do whatever they want. Someone once said, and I do think there's a lot of truth in this, the opposite of love is not hate, it's apathy. It's apathy. So when we, are, we have a culture that's calling love, letting people do whatever they want, that's essentially a passive, apathetic response to a relationship. It's not loving, right? And I could go on on this all day with, with simple stuff, but you understand fundamentally that when you truly love someone, if they're going to put themselves in harm's way or they're doing something that's going to damage them or their future, like the loving thing to do is not just to condone it, Right? or to rubber stamp it. The loving thing to do is enter into a discussion with them about how that probably isn't the wisest choice, even at cost to yourself or potentially cost to the relationship. And that's why I think, not to go too far off track here, but that's why I think our society has defined and tried to redefine love in the ways that it has in terms of condoning behavior, rubber stamping behavior, letting whatever happens is because we're incredibly selfish. So we're saying, I love this person, and so therefore I'm gonna let them do this. But the reality, the reality is I love myself so much, I'm not willing to experience pain on somebody else's behalf. I'm not willing to experience them not liking me because I told them what they're doing is wrong. In a loving way, of course, you're not just gonna be like out there screaming at people, but I mean, even just talking to people. So when you have love that's so twisted like that, when we uh, believe things about love that's actually like a cognitive distortion, like of how you should behave, that's incredibly 
incredibly problematic. And this is not the kind of love I'm talking about. I'm not talking about a love that condones every behavior, a kind of love that is like, you can, you just go out and, and do your thing and, and that's okay, I'll always be here, you know, that kind of stuff. No, it's not a sappy, sentimental, like kind of permissive love in all cases, right? It's a, it's a little bit uh, of, a, it's more intense than that. It's more beautiful than that. It's more holistic than that. God loves because that is his nature and the expression of his being. God loves because literally he can't help himself, right? He can't help himself. If you put me in a room by myself long enough with a pint of Ben and Jerry's on the counter and a spoon, something will happen, generally speaking. Now, again, I'm improving on this, but that's in, my, in a room by myself with it. That's strong. That's a lot. But... I'm saying I can't help it. And that's just a terrible little, you know, analogy, metaphor. But like God can't help himself. He can't help but love you. You know, the story that oftentimes encompasses this sort of agape love or that what we think of as the nature of God's love is what we've referred to as the prodigal son story. Now, I've talked before in the past about how we get that story twisted a lot. And I don't want to go into all that today, but I want to say this. That story, when Jesus tells it, is sandwiched in between a couple of other stories that have exactly the same theme, the lost sheep, the lost coin, right? And so they oftentimes, in Jesus' culture, rabbis told stories or parables or taught lessons in threes. The reason they would do that is to emphasize a point to make sure everybody got it, right? So they're going over the same thing. So all those stories have an incredibly similar theme. And what those stories are actually about right? What those stories are actually about is actually about the relationship between God and the nation of Israel. So the prodigal son is actually the nation of Israel, and they would have understood that as such, right? It's Jacob, the nation of Israel, Jacob and the prodigal, right? Jesus retells the story of Israel, and what's interesting in all three of those stories, when you take them in context, and when you understand that they're teaching the exact same thing, is that the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son could not and weren't capable of finding themselves, right? The lost coin, what happens in that story? The person who lost it goes out and desperately searches for it. The lost sheep, what happens? The shepherd goes out and desperately searches for it. The sheep is lost. The sheep has no chance to find itself or any way of getting back. The coin is an inanimate object. It has no ability to do anything. But it's the owner, it's the caretaker that goes out and searches for it. And the prodigal son, yes, the prodigal son makes sort of a change of mind on some level, but he's not necessarily repentant as we think of it. If you really read the story, he's actually just all about survival. He's just like, I don't want to die. And like, maybe my father will let me be just like a servant. Like, I just want to have some food to eat. He's not necessarily repentant. And so he starts to come back. Yes, great. He's coming back. But who is the one? right, who's waiting for him and who makes an utter fool of himself and sees him coming off in a distance and starts sprinting down the road, right, to meet his son. It's God. Those stories are about the heart of God. They're not about the return of the son in any way, shape, or form. It's about the heart of God and that he can't help himself, that he sees his son who has betrayed him, who has squandered everything, who has rebelled, who has basically said, I want life without you. I wish you were dead. I want nothing to do with you. And he sees that son, and he doesn't even know where that son's at. Keep that in mind. In the parable, he had no idea. He just saw the son in the distance. 
and he runs down the road full scale, full speed, embarrassing himself in that culture and wraps his arms around the sun. He can't help himself. God does not merely love out of an act of will. He is love. He cannot help himself. It's in his nature. He loves the unlovable and the unlovely, not because we deserve to be loved or because of any excellence we possess, but because it's his nature to love, and he has to be true to his nature. He truly can't help himself. Keeping with that theme, there's an old parable that's not in Scripture, just to be clear. There's an old parable that's not in Scripture about a monk who was walking alongside of a stream when he saw a scorpion struggling in the water. Knowing that scorpions can't swim, he quickly plunged into the water to rescue it. Carefully, he picked up the scorpion with his fingers and walked it back to the riverbank. Just when he was about to set the scorpion down, it turned and stung his hand. The monk, being in pain, drew his hand back, and as a result, he flung the scorpion back into the stream. When the monk realized what had happened, he went back into the water, and he picked up the scorpion once again. But just as the monk was about to set the scorpion down, he was again stung on the hand by it. This scene repeated several times until the monk finally saved the scorpion. There happened to be a little boy playing by the stream who had witnessed the entire incident. Being confused, he asked the monk, excuse me, sir, why do you keep trying to save that scorpion? It stings you every time you try to rescue it. The monk replied, dear boy, just as it is the water's nature to make me wet, so it is the nature of the scorpion to sting. And just as it is the scorpion's nature to sting, it is my nature to save. He can't help himself. He cannot help himself. God is love. Now, an important caveat before I get into a couple of our, our biggest points here, we'll get closer to the end. This is not me saying you should allow yourself to be abused. This is not me saying that you should allow yourself to be run over, that someone treats you poorly, abuses you emotionally, physically, psychologically, spiritually, over and over again, that you need to keep diving in the stream trying to save them. That's not what I'm saying at all. It's not what I'm saying. That's a totally different scenario. Do you need to work towards forgiveness for that person? Absolutely not. Do you need to allow them to be full access to your life, full trust, when they've stung you a bunch of times? Absolutely not, right? It is good to have healthy, healthy boundaries. You can still forgive them. You can still pray for them. You can still have agape love for them from a safe distance, okay? So don't hear this as you need to go home right now and like, you know, if you've been in a tumultuous, abusive relationship, just submit yourself and subject yourself to that. Not what I'm saying. Not what I'm saying. Got it? Not what I'm saying. Okay. So, with all that being said about God's nature uh, to love and, and the parable I just told, here's two truths of three that we're going to hit and then we'll be about done. So, truth number one we should never change our behaviors or thoughts based on the behaviors or thoughts of others. Right? When you change your behaviors or thoughts, now again, remember what I just said, okay? Right? About that. So understand I'm not talking about that. But we should never change our behaviors or thoughts based on the behaviors or thoughts of others. When you do that, that ends up being some kind of level of like codependency. 
some kind of level of like a messed up relationship or that you are subject to like people pleasing or, or whatever it is in some situations or you're allowing things to be dictated to by your circumstances. And so, yeah, you'll love them as long as they're cool with this, but as soon as they're not, you no longer love them. Well, that's not actual love. That's just like, you know, you getting something out of it and you're good until that point. So we should never change our behaviors or thoughts based on the behaviors or thoughts of others. And I'm going to expand on that a little bit. So if you're like, what do you mean? That doesn't sound quite right. Hopefully I'll clear some of that up. Number two, truth. We may come across those who harm and insult us due to their ignorance or lack of understanding, but we must never allow their actions to rob us of our love. And that's what Jesus was speaking to when he said, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most, most, and that's scary, most will grow cold. If people are operating out of a place where they're ignorant, they have a lack of understanding, they're under the influence of the enemy, which anybody who is not in Christ is serving the enemy. That's a strong statement, and it's true at the same time. You're either with us or you're against us. You cannot serve two masters. So these people are under the the power of the enemy. And because they're acting out of that place, we cannot give ourselves over to the enemy through hatred, right? Through condemnation, through distance, through judgment, all these things. We must never allow their actions to rob us of our love. I'll simplify it even more. So if you didn't understand truth one and you felt like that was a little off, truth two, you're like, that makes a little more sense. Here's an even simpler way to think about it. By a quote by a guy named Dan Moeller, who I absolutely love. He says this, don't allow sin against you to create sin in you. Don't allow sin against you to create sin in you. Somebody comes against you and sins. Don't, don't let that sin have a double victory, Right? It's already had victory in that the enemies managed to use that person to wound you in some way, and they've given themselves over to something. Don't compound it. Don't allow sin against you to create sin in you. Truth number three, agape love. This is a transition point here. Agape love is always, always shown by what it does. By what it does the missionary Heidi Baker says it like this, very simple, very simple. Love looks like something. It looks like something. We're told in Scripture, the most well-known verse by anybody who's never even gone to church in their life is John three sixteen, And it tells us that God's love looks like something. God's love is displayed on the cross. For God so loved the world that he what? He gave his only son. Love looks like something. It looks like God acting, intervening in the story of human history and sending his son. He loved us, so he gave. Jesus, right, the word became flesh. God's nature is love. Jesus' nature is love. Love looks like something. It became flesh. It looked like Jesus, and then it looked like Jesus on the cross. Cross-shaped, cruciform love. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5 says this, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, so because he loved us, it looks like something. He acts. What does he do? He made us, making something is an act, isn't it? 
Like you're making something. It's an action. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you have been saved. We know that we didn't deserve such a sacrifice, but he can't help but loving us. He cannot help himself. Tim, if you want to go ahead and come up. Continuing on, Romans 5, 8 is another text that emphasizes this point. But God demonstrates, remember, love looks like something, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. So God loved us. He sent his son. God loved us, so he made us alive in Christ. God loves us, and he demonstrates his love again by having Jesus die for us. 1 John 3, 1 says this, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, right? Lavished is you're doing something. If you lavish your kids with gifts, that's a lot of gifts. You're, you're showing them love looks like something, and God has lavished us. He has spoiled us, right? So see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. Here's another statement. Big one. We are to love others with agape love. Whether they are fellow believers or bitter enemies. Jesus threw everything about this upside down, inside out, sideways and backwards. When a guy came to him and said, teacher, tell me, you know, which are the greatest commandments? Right? Or I'm sorry, Jesus asked him, and the guy says, love the Lord your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, you've answered correctly. Go and do these, and you'll be good. And the guy says, well, who's my neighbor? All right? Who's my neighbor? Because we think of our neighbor as like the people next door that we really like, you know? Maybe not the people next door who let their grass grow too long, you know? Don't pull their weeds. Like, you know, have loud dogs. In our neighborhood, there's somebody that has a rooster in their backyard. It's loud. It sounds like a sick rooster every morning. I don't know. But it's like Jesus tells this story, right? And he talks about two bitter, bitter, bitter enemies. He says, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells a story about a guy. It's the Good Samaritan story who helps his enemy, Right? And he says, this is your neighbor. So when it says love your neighbor, I'm not just talking about those who love you and do good to you. I'm talking about those who spitefully use you, who bitterly oppose you, who are your enemies. I'm talking about loving them. Jesus says strong words. He goes, what credit is it to you if you love those who love you? Even the Pharisees and the tax collectors do that, he says. Like that's easy to do. He said, but you are to love your enemies. That's what distinguishes you. And that's why I have a lot of concern about the state of the church, not society. Although, and I don't mean to say that I don't care about those things. Don't hear me like that. What I mean is my job is, is the church. My job is to minister within the church, pastor the church, help the church respond accordingly. I have concerns that we're turning our love off that we have justified all sorts of behaviors and made excuses and that we've kind of become beholden to some gospel that's not the gospel. And we, we are loving those who love us. And you know what Jesus says? Congrats, way to go. That makes you just like the pagans. 
awesome. Now our job is to love those who don't agree with us politically, to love with agape love those who don't agree with us about social issues, to love those who, with agape love who, you know, mock us for different things and, and the list goes on. We're gonna love those with agape love in the same way that the Samaritan loved the, his enemy that, on the side of the road. Agape love as modeled by Jesus is not based on a feeling. Rather, it's a determined act of the will, a joyful resolve to put the welfare of others above our own. Last thing I wanna say, this sort of love, this agape love does not come naturally to us. Because of our fallen nature, we're incapable of producing such a love. Have you ever tried just, and I, said, I know I said it's an act of will, but have you ever tried just out of pure willpower to love somebody? It doesn't happen. If we're to love as God loves, that love, that agape, that love can only, only come from its source. If we are trying to love through our own sheer act of will and we are not tapped into the source of love itself, the God who is love and who can't help but loving others, even those who crucified him, who despitefully used him and mocked him, if we can't tap into that source, what we've got at best, at best, is a cell phone with no connection. What we've got at best is something with no service, no power, no real validity. At best, we're faking things to impress other people. You wondered how I was going to bring that story back around. <laughs> but because of God's love toward us, if we understand how much he loves us, that he can't help but love us, despite all of our faults and our failings and our weaknesses and all those things, if we understand how much he loves us and we just understand that and we tap into that, then we can love one another without as much effort. At times, will it still take will? It absolutely will. But usually the act of will that it takes is not an act from here to here. It's an act of will where you go here to here. And you're like, God, I don't even want to pray for this person <laughs> right now because you know why. And I don't want to pray for them because I know that if I do pray for them, you'll transform me. It's like Jonah. Like, I don't even want to go to Nineveh because I know if I do, you're a gracious and compassionate and kind God. And if I go and preach, the people will repent. I don't even want to do it. But it takes an act of will, right? But when you do that... You can love others without effort. It will flow out of you naturally. Our, we will become like God. We will become love. Challenge number three on that note, and then literally I'm done. A simple challenge. This is one for the summer too. So last one is to pray every day this summer, every day, this prayer, simple prayer. Holy Spirit, fill me up with love and increase my capacity to love with a radical agape style love. This has been my prayer a lot recently. God, I need an increased capacity to love. I need an increased ability to love, but I can't do it on my own. Holy Spirit, fill me up with the love that comes from the triune God. Fill me up with an increased capacity, and then fill me up with opportunities to demonstrate that love. So I would encourage you, don't leave here and go, all right, I gotta love people better. Don't do that. That's not the takeaway. The takeaway is I'm gonna pray about this every single day because I want to 
love, or at least I want to want to love, right? Start there, that's fine too. Holy Spirit, fill me up with love. Let me pray. Holy Spirit, fill us collectively with, up with your love. Increase our capacity to love. Increase our ability to love with an agape style love that you demonstrated, Jesus, on the cross. We do not, we do not want to let our love grow cold. We do not want to be counted among those who have turned their love off. We want to love even when it hurts. Because you modeled that for us, Jesus, and that's what we're called to do. It's in your name we pray. Amen.